0: Welcome to another edition of the Populous Papers, where the elixir vitae awaits urine. It's the second season of the Populous Papers. This is your host, Colin Kramer, and I'm very excited to take you on a trip through ancient history, all the way back to 1993, when something came on TV that was so completely outrageous, I couldn't believe it. These people were so totally fucked up, and I liked it. It was Sid and Nancy, and not even the movie. This was a sketch on that show, The State, Remember on MTV? It was wild. And I'm like, what is this? Uh, It didn't make much sense because it was insane and I was 11, but that's where I first learned the word punk. All my mom could tell me was that punk's basically just noise. Of course, everything you need to know is usually hiding right in plain sight. But it helps just knowing the right magic word. It's like putting on a pair of those lenses from They Live then the signs and symbols start to seep into your subconscious like that strange slightly off blue circle of the germs black flags four crooked bars you'd see kids with that eerie dk on a shirt going around like they would just joined a new secret society and the best was that crass logo designed by Dave King in 1977. And sometimes he still sees uh, gutter punks around. He'll kind of let them know when he sees that crass symbol tattooed on them that he designed it, and they'll be like, Fuck you, old man! This isn't yours! (laughs) See, that's punk. Collective ownership. No authority. I love it! Crass were also the band that put the issue of animal rights on the map years before PETA was even founded, by the way. So... Now it gets a little embarrassing, but also serendipitous, because on the very first day of ninth grade, I walk in and see every single guy with the exact same hairdo as me. Short, blonde, and spiky. Hey, it was the nineties. And my suspicion is that Bart Simpson's at least partly to blame. I mean, Bart's a punk. In fact, he's a skater punk. And Lisa's an animal rights activist. So it's all connected. Now, It's about 95, and DIY shows are popping up all over the place. Even the Boys and Girls Club and random churches would have punk bands come out and play. The record store near me added a massive punk ska section in the back, and it was stocked with all kinds of weird underground stuff. A lot of it international, like the Pleasure Fuckers and Turbo Negro. It was amazing. They called it the CD Listening Bar in Capo Beach, And the best part was, you didn't even have to buy anything. They'd let you just sit there and listen to CDs all day. It was punk rock college for me. Especially because of the compilations. Old school punk, stage diving to the oldies, Uh, Rhino Records did one called We're Desperate, the LA scene from 76 to 79. It was amazing. You'd learn so much from the liner notes alone. And the reason you had to go with these greatest hits albums, even though uh, most of these songs weren't exactly hits, was that so many of these bands came and went so fast. You know, they barely had uh, time to record, let alone a huge cash flow. The Screamers were a great example. They vanished before they could even make any recordings. So it's not like you could just kick back and experience them in the safety of your own home. You had to get out there. Um the clubs on Sunset were only booking punk bands for about 9 months straight there cuz it got too intense. So now you really had to get out there and check out the valley, check out Orange County, see what's up in Bakersfield cuz punk's essence is classism. The work boots, the Dickies, straight up working class. You think these kids in Bakersfield give a fuck about trying to make it big in the music business? No 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 no. This was the real deal. Genuine folk music. Very youth-friendly. They didn't need fancy training to play most punk songs. Black Flag went through so many different singers, they even lost one in the middle of a show one time. And some random kid had to jump up on stage and sing. That's the whole beauty of it. If you want to see a hilarious and brilliant L.A. movie that was made during the peak of punk, check out Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. I know they're considered to be more hippies, but it's really interesting seeing the overlap between all the craziness of that time and kind of how it all came together at clubs like the Roxy with the help of copious amounts of dope. Whereas the 60s were more idealistic and surreal, punk was about angst and existentialism. It was a big fuck you to the powers that be, a throwback to the teddy boys of the 50s who went around nicking cars, and you had it with the LSD heads in the 60s who said, fuck you, I ain't going to Vietnam, And you had it with the anarchist pirates like Captain Mission, who went around helping men escape from slavery and the death penalty. You got Bonnie and Clyde, who robbed the banksters and rejected sexual norms. Surfers, who fled the mainland for big waves and lived off fresh fish and pineapples with no government and no jobs. Punks are the Outsiders, the Wanderers, which are also two excellent books and movies about street gangs that you should check out, by the way. The tribal influence was especially apparent with the emphasis on body art. I've also heard Beethoven credited as the very first punker. You know, not only did he rock himself deaf, but the guy never even took a bath. Tchaikovsky was hardcore, too. He shot off live cannons during his shows. Uh, I guess that's more metal. Of course, he had shamanic drum circles in Africa, long before either of them. Drug-induced jazz, gypsy music. The archetypes and shenanigans of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis, Keith Richards, glam rock, and that heavy guitar style started by the three Yardbirds guitarists, Beck, Clapton, and Page. So these various rivers made for the tidal wave of punk, a pure form of chaos, the intensity so raw and quite malleable when you're young. You can get turned into something like a Manchurian candidate. So where are you going to go with this newfound power once it's activated? There's a war on for your mind. And thank goodness, in the ninth grade, I met my very first girlfriend, whose older brother happened to be a Sharp, Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. He taught me about how the Sex Pistols were really just an advertisement for Malcolm and Vivian's sex shop, and that the original Skinheads had nothing to do with racism. In fact, they were from Jamaica, very close to the Rude Boys and the Mods. If you've heard of the Anti-Racist Action Network, and I hope you have its founders were old school skins but um, then Nazi punks in Great Britain ripped off the skinhead look and basically did to it what Hitler did to small mustaches far right skins were having open rallies and um, I mean it's going all the way back to the 30s in England but thank goodness uh, the left was always there they always stepped up including the clash and they would shut that shit down and it worked Fascists were too frightened to come out and play for a long time after that. And check out the film London Town if you want to see something more recent uh, about the beautiful tradition of punks punching fascists. Lots of great clash stories in there, too. Um, Now, the punk clubs, they were like a sacred space where you'd come and get radicalized. Subhumans and crass would integrate little messages onto their album artwork, telling you to steal it if the store was charging too much. Before the clubs had become ideological battlegrounds, it's like the war was already there, waiting for us. Unsatiable angst. The first gangs I saw form were over video games. I had to lend my support to the Sega Genesis crew when they took on the spoiled Super Nintendo brats in the fifth grade. It was just like the Greasers and the Socias and the Outsiders. The rich jocks with the newest system versus those of us with the older consoles actually still had an Atari by this point. In 94, there was a rumble at my junior high that was being billed as the skaters versus the Mexicans, which was a joke, because there were Mexicans on both sides, there were skaters on both sides, plus it was all the same kids that sold weed, uh, so who would want to hurt any of them? You could buy a fat joint of Chronic for three bucks back then. And a few of us rode with Breck Breckenridge on the way to class one day, carpool, And he points uh, to his mom at one point and is like, Mom, I need three dollars for lunch money. And as soon as she hands him the three bucks, he turns to us in the back seat and goes, Joint money. (laughs) So let's move on to Punk's mom and dad. Anarchy and chaos. Had some goon call me out for having the anarchy symbol painted on my skateboard once. He was going off about how, if there's no government, then you'd be dead which might be true, but anarchy isn't necessarily about the absence of government, but the absence of hierarchy. And through deciding and enforcing laws through direct participation, some would call that voluntarism. You notice how libertarians have been stealing the idea of less government, especially since David Koch ran as their VP in, uh, 1980 on a platform of basically ending all protections for us working folk and turning complete control of the courts and police state over to the oligarchs so that the infrastructure that we built can be shredded and then used to guard their private assets. Makes a lot of sense. A core tenet of libertarianism and most forms of conservative thought is that having poor people is a good thing. And that there should be a class system with most of us kept on the very bottom. First, it was justified by the divine right of kings, then Darwinism, and now the myth of a magical free market. Anarchy, on the other hand, is much closer to communism in that it's classless. We are human fucking beings, not inferior classes of life, and we demand full equanimity. Think of a triangle. A whole lot on bottom, and just a few members of the lucky sperm club at the very top, with all the wealth and power channeled upward. Reverse Robin Hood. That's how we've operated from old-world feudalism to Reaganomics. But a closed, top-down system is unsustainable. Just look at nature. It's open and interconnected. Trees don't hoard all of the liquid it absorbs. It doesn't stash it somewhere offshore. No, the water is released back into the atmosphere. So, if conservatism is a triangle, anarchy is the circle. Like the knights gathered at King Arthur's round table, everyone has an equal voice. And let's take the symbolism of the circle a little further, shall we? A mosh pit is an interesting example of anarchy in action. When someone goes down, the collective stops, gets them up standing up again, And then it's right back into it. There's a general trust and a certain fluidity between those on the inside and outside. Only pit I couldn't handle was during an adolescence show, Kids of the Black Hole. Phew! It's too intense! You'll notice, too, that the patrons at these clubs often do a better job of crowd control than the hired security staff. Self-sustainable. You ever hear about the time Henry Rollins played a show in Alhambra and some tweaked-out piece-of-shit biker security guard stabbed him in the back. The worst part was, Henry had to come back and play again the very next night! (laughs) Another thing about mosh pits, their similarity to Jewish folk dance is uncanny. You got one circle going one way, with an inner circle countering them. And headbanging is exactly like shuckling. Uh, When rabbis are bobbing their upper bodies back and forth, It's like this divine art presence that's pulling them forward. It's the same thing! Even the architecture of most music venues is based on the synagogue. How you have to keep a space in between where you enter and where the ceremony takes place. Even the word entrance means under a spell. And they're both really into the word oi for some reason. Minor Threat put Straight Edge on the map, which was cool for about a minute, but... By the time that scene hit the West Coast, I don't know, it seemed co opted by an army of boneheads. I'd see kids getting beaten up for smoking cigarettes or eating red meat. These fucking wannabe cops were basically the proto alt right, probably raised by Confederate sympathizers and conspiracy nuts. There's not a lot of robust debate going on with these types. It's more like speaking through memes, code wars the worship of primordial idols. Fred Armisen used to play drums in a punk band called Trenchmouth, and they opened for Down By Law one night, and a bunch of Nazi punks showed up and were chanting Sieg Heil throughout the set. So Armisen decided to take his career in a different direction, which is great for him and us Portlandia fans, but not everyone has that luxury to just walk away. Punk clubs, by their very nature, are kind of asking for danger. That's the whole beauty of it. But what if members of the American Nazi Party and the KKK show up to your local synagogue threatening to commit arson and murder everyone inside? Because that's exactly what happened in Charlottesville during the Unite the Right rally. Did you know that the Beth Israel synagogue was almost burned to the ground? The oldest synagogue in America. A clan of Jew-hating maniacs showed up with torches chanting, burn it down, and death to Jews." and the temple's attendees weren't even part of the counter-protest. They were indoors, on private property, mind you, peacefully observing Shabbat. And they got to deal with Nazis coming at them with torches and death threats? Not cool. I mean, those are my people. So the synagogue's president, Alan Zimmerman, calls the Charlottesville Police Department for help, But apparently those cops were too busy protecting the Nazis and the KKK, and arresting what few journalists were in town. Even that fucker in the White House gave the white supremacists his blessing. It's okay. They had a permit. Well, not to try and burn down a synagogue, they didn't. He even called the KKK, Very fine people. Not a surprise considering that his father was arrested at a Klan rally in 1927. But when 45 was asked about the neo-Nazi website in which you can throw the Jewish journalist of your choice into an oven and then Trump appears and says, You're fired! Instead of saying, Oh, that's unacceptable, or we don't want you with us, you know what Donald said? He said, There's no message. That is a message. And the alt-right love speaking in code. They even think that Trump uses a different teleprompter voice to sort of let them know when he's being sincere and when he has to play it cool and just do the job of president. So apparently freedom of speech no longer includes religion or peaceful assembly, because not a single member of law enforcement ever showed up to the synagogue. But you know who did show up? Antifa. And thank heavens they did. I know the corporate media is trying to scare you into thinking that there's some sort of far-left terror group, but that synagogue would be ashes right now had it not been for Antifa. According to Cornell West, he and 19 other clergy members would have been crushed like cockroaches by the alt-right goons had the anti-fascist army not offered protection. And then, just a few months after Charlottesville, what do you know, Richard Spencer calls for an agitation event at the University of Florida, not even invited by the university, by the way, and gets hundreds of police officers offering to protect him. This is a guy that's called for soft ethnic cleansing in the United States. Makes a lot of sense, right? Now, we've seen this movie before. In The Iceman Cometh by Eugene O'Neill, everyone's paranoid of the anarchists. Oh, spoiler alert for anyone that's not familiar with the play written 100 years ago. One guy even turns his own mother in for being an anarchist. And this was before the Red Scare, mind you, so prior to the Pinkos, anarchy was the thing to be scared of. You know, the start of World War I was blamed on an alleged anarchist? An anarchist shot President McKinley, Sacco and Vincetti were executed for being anarchists, and then that pretty much petered out, and communism became the new enemy. But considering that Russia and China are actually more capitalist than we are now, and communism's three only success stories that I know of are tribal societies, the Israeli kibbutz system, and of course the Smurfs, Uh, there's certainly nothing to be afraid of. So that well dried up, and for most of my life, it's been the terrorists who are in the spotlight. But even paranoia has a shelf life, so here we are, full circle with fear of anarchy, making a big comeback. And I would submit to you that it's the working class essence of punk, that anti-authoritarian element at its heart that's kept all these goons in check. I know people that have been fighting Nazis for 20 years and have the broken teeth to show for it, just as the unions and trade guilds merged to protect working people after the Renaissance. Punks are the ones stepping up across the country protecting synagogues, cemeteries, and mosques that are under attack, keeping track of the absolute worst of the worst while law enforcement refuses to do so. And with Cittolini bringing the neo-Confederates out of the woodwork, the anti-fascist army are needed now more than ever. Uh, and don't confuse Antifa with Black Block. That's a different department. And none of them just came out of the blue in Berkeley. In fact, Antifa has been around for over a hundred years and has a very rich history with some incredibly honorable intentions, not only in Europe, but here as well. Did you ever hear about Leon Lewis, World War One veteran that spearheaded a group of citizen spies right here in L.A.? And they managed to uncover a Nazi plot to break into a federal armory, exterminate every single Jew in Boyle Heights, and then assassinate 27 of the most influential Jews in Hollywood, with Charlie Chaplin being at the top of the list. When Lewis brought proof of the plots to the LAPD, the officer in charge explained to Lewis that what the Nazis were doing was right, and that he approved of their efforts. The cop even said that every Jew is a communist and every communist is a Jew. Law enforcement did nothing, just like in Charlottesville. So Lewis and his gang had to do it without any help. And they infiltrated every single white power group in Los Angeles. And there were dozens! I think my favorite is the uh, Friends of New Germany. Remember, this was all before World War II had even started. And the way these plots were foiled was the spies got the Nazis to turn on each other. Through infighting and paranoia, everyone was accusing everyone else of being a double agent, so the murder plots simply fell apart. This I got from the book Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America by Stephen J. Ross. Now I know it's kinda hard to imagine such open antisemitism in LA with our liberal reputation, but there were dozens and dozens of Aryan clubs right out in the open and just as many Aryan bookstores. I have some pictures of the one downtown. Business was booming. Besides, LA was never the progressive town many think it is. We're a fucking corporate town. If our media was truly leftist, they'd spend every hour of every day demanding that fossil fuel profits be turned over to the people and that corporations be transformed into worker-owned co-ops. Instead, I had to look at a Where's the Birth Certificate billboard right off the 5 Freeway the entire time that I lived in Echo Park. Would you believe that California had two different western white houses being built for Adolf Hitler in the 30s? One right off Rustic Canyon in the Hollywood Hills, and the other was up near Santa Rosa, I believe. The idea being that since California is about halfway between Berlin and Tokyo, the Fuhrer would want to have a base uh, or two out here. Next, you got the notorious Jewish gangster Meyer Lansky who put together an anti-fascist squad to attack Nazis in New York City. He even turned down Lucky Luciano's offer of extra muscle because Lansky wanted it to be an all-Jewish, all-volunteer hit squad. And Luciano could've really helped. I mean, he's widely considered to be the greatest gangster of all time. But Lansky was like, nah, don't need it. Then, my favorite, there's George Orwell who moved to Spain during their civil war. This is before he wrote 1984. And he went there so he could join not the mainstream left-wing resistance to Franco, but the hardcore anti-fascist militia dedicated to assassinating all fascist leaders in Spain. Orwell even survived getting shot in the throat at one point, and uh, his wife Sonia was also there fighting. How romantic is that? Needless to say, if Orwell were alive today, he'd not only approve of Antifa and their methods, he'd be their undisputed leader. The head of Italian Freemasonry tried to have Mussolini assassinated in 1925, and as early as the 1860s, there were black groups protesting the KKK. I know, I know, Klansmen aren't exactly fascists, they're just white nationalists. Uh, but in any case, a bunch of African-American members of the Union League and the Republican Party, because, you know, you only have to go back to the 1800s to find good Republicans. They boycotted Klansmen, they organized, uh, armed self-defense groups, and in some cases, they even torched the plantations of former slaveholders. Sounds a lot like Samuel L. Jackson's character in Hateful Eight. Mm, This is from Mark Bray's book, The Antifa Handbook, by the way, which I highly recommend. Now... I'd like you to visualize a cockroach infestation. At first, you may not mind the pests so much, because they seem harmless. And sometimes, they're even sort of amusing. Besides, you rarely ever see them. But over time, they multiply. And one day, you wake up to find a cockroach crawling around right on your face. They used to only come out at night, but now they own the place. In broad daylight, they do whatever they want. No big deal. It's their house now, because you played nice for so long and didn't do anything to stop them. Now, they've gotten so huge and aggressive that your home has become a disgusting and uninhabitable den for deplorables due to your failure to take action. So that's when you call Terminex. They stump out the roaches and prevent more eggs from hatching. The surviving pests are forced out to cower deep in the abscesses of the underworld, where they belong. Now, you may not be a huge fan of Terminex or their methods, but there's definitely a time and a place for them. Well, Antifa is Terminex. Even if there's a goon or two that signed up just to bust a few heads, hey, we could use those guys right about now that David Duke's followers have finally come out of Grandma's basement and are receiving blessings from that weasel in the White House. I'm sorry, but my grandpa did not fight in World War II so that Nazis could march openly in American streets in 2017. Do you know anti-Semitic hate crimes spiked by 86% during the first quarter of 2017? That's straight from the Anti-Defamation League. And according to the Department of Justice, hate crimes surged by 20% during the 2016 election. The bastards have been emboldened while the corporate media tries to spoon-feed us smear campaigns against any real resistance to the far-right takeover of the United States. Now, if there was an outfit of child molesters coming to town, you'd expect the authorities to step in, wouldn't you? These guys aren't getting together to run a debate club. They exist to do harm. And you'd have to be insane to support free speech 100% of the time. Everything has limits we don't tolerate snuff movies in a civilized society, nor is there room for such twisted ideologies as Richard Spencer and ethnic cleansing. Duke University even let him publish a dissertation on it! Uh, that's that, uh, liberal university life for ya. Even worse, Spencer owns a bunch of farms with his mom in some of the absolute shittiest parts of Louisiana. They grow cotton. Imagine that! And they're getting government subsidies. That's right, you and I are paying big bucks for Spencer to spread his disease while exploiting some of the poorest workers in America. Totally unacceptable. Shut that shit down. And in Sacramento, there's an intimate alliance between cops and white supremacists. State records prove that cops are protecting the identities of neo-Nazis and even covering up their crimes. Instead, they're going after people like Yvette Falarka, a teacher that was stabbed and bludgeoned in the head by fascists in Berkeley. Even her prosecutors are relying on homemade video footage from Project Veritas. Remember them? The right-wing hate group that's notorious for doctoring videos and making up fake news? At an Oregon alt-right event, police allowed members of a right-wing militia-style group to help officers arrest an anti-fascist activist. Reminds me of the interstate cross-check system in which law enforcement worked hand-in-hand with the state Republican Party officials to make sure everyone with an ethnic name had to be knocked off the rosters and then vote provisionally. Of course, none of those provisional ballots ever get counted. Millions of votes still haven't been counted. They just sit there in those strange pink envelopes. So if you're wondering why so many members of the anti-fascist army keep their faces covered, it's not because they're seeking violence. Rather, it's a safety measure against the cops who time and time again refuse to side with peace and justice, and instead are saying, we gotta protect these wholesome white kids from those evil socialists and anarchists. Good old boys in blue for ya. Jello Biafra made a great point about the media loving the term alt-right like alt-country or alternative pop music. Why not call them what we used to call them? Neo-fucking-Nazis! Tsk. What an Orwellian shit show! But it's also a golden opportunity. Because according to chaos theory, this is the discombobulated state of discord that comes right before creation. We're there. And as upsetting as the presence of chaos can seem, Remember, even Aleister Crowley confessed that the only demon he could not embrace as an extended family member was the demon of chaos. But it's also very empowering. It's a cathartic moment ripe with magic. Because chaos isn't just a state of extreme confusion. In Greek mythology, chaos is the most ancient of all gods, the personification of the infinite space which preceded the manifestation of the cosmos that untamable ingredient in a formless state of matter. And could anyone ask for a more perfect epitome of chaos and unrule than Donald Trump? The most intense psychiatric crisis ever, and easily the most bizarre episode in American history. He's more hated and unstable than any other living being, with an erratic sleep cycle that centers around McDonald's and Twitter. None of us know what kinds of drugs he's really taking, or how powerful they are, and nobody knows how many hidden weapons are pointed at the United States right now. And how powerful are they? This fucker has access to an $80 billion military intelligence apparatus, the best the world has ever seen, and yet he chooses to ignore it, and instead get his inside scoop from InfoWars and Fox News. (laughs) It's a democracy's worst nightmare, but also... The ultimate recipe for chaos. So let's make it the liberating kind of chaos, shall we? The risk is serious, but so is the hand it forces. Physicists define chaos as a new, dynamical system that is extremely sensitive to its initial conditions. Reminds me of the Me Too movement that began last year, purging all the toxic males, and it continues to grow with the Never Again movement that's unfolding right now. It's as if we're retracing our own shadowy threads as a new, more compassionate eon is birthed. No more empowering of the enemy. We're in a cold civil war. An ideological clash. Look what happened to Rand Paul. He was attacked in his own yard, six broken ribs, and spokespeople insisted that the attack was not politically motivated, but the timing was just too uncanny. Remember, it happened right after that slime bag authored an executive order for Trump because he couldn't possibly write one for himself to appeal elements of the Affordable Care Act. Now, apparently there was a lot of shit going down between the senator and his neighbors. See, the irony for these libertarian types is that they want to live far, far away from the people that work for them, where common rules don't apply. But some of these homeowners associations are extremely strict so someone with no sense of community or social contract like Paul is bound to come to blows and have some shit brewing with his neighbors. Also, the assailant turns out to have been another doctor that Rand used to work with, and he's a major supporter of socialized medicine. I bring this up as proof that it's not simply a class war we're in, it's common sense trying to creep out of the closet. This town ain't big enough for both operating systems, and chaos could give the correct one a jump start. So maybe more people should become chaoticians. Use your willpower to reshape reality and tilt nature's variables in your favor. Anyone can do it. It's magic. And it's your birthright as part of the innate co-partnership we hold with the divine disorder of the universe. Butterfly effect and multiverse theory hint at the state of things pre-creation, but how many of us are actually out there taking command of the chaos? Could be fun. Okay, enough of all that stuff. Now for some new music by Brittany Mack, followed by my interview with Nick Mamatas. Alright, so we have a very accomplished guest I'm really excited about for today's episode. He's a championship martial artist, as well as the award-winning author and former editor of Clark's World. Uh, He's an anthologist whose latest work is Mixed Up. Uh, Some of his other work includes Insults Every Man Should Know, The Future is Japanese, You Might Sleep, The Necronomicon, Move Underground, Bullet Time, i am providence and love is the law he's been described as lewis carroll with an isp and harlan ellison hyped up on steroids nick mamatas thank you so much for being on
1: my pleasure all
0: right so let's get right into it uh i'd say no underground bookstores fringe section would be complete without at least a few of your books What was your earliest exposure to the world of the counterculture?
1: Probably the 80s, um, a combination of comic book shops, which were just becoming a thing in the 80s, and uh, so were black and white comics and independent comics. Right. And a few uh, punk rock records that an older uncle had, and a couple of little zines that'd be floating around, like, uh, or, you know, sort of underground comic zines like Raw, and uh, stuff from Alternative Tentacles, and just seeing things here and there, little glimpses But really in college, things opened up, which I guess is a typical story. We had a college radio station um, at the time when the college charts were utterly distinct from popular charts. So it was different types of music just beginning to become commercialized. Um, And the Village Voice would be dropped off at the Swing Union every week, and I'd devour that. And later on, I'd go to the city. And Tower Records and Tower Books as well used to have an outpost section. of small press stuff everything from kathy acker to uh books on ufos to uh far right and far left pamphlets right uh, various words. so i just sort of dove into that uh straight ahead
0: oh man i miss the old tower records in orange county it was like the only place we had we mm-hmm. could get all kinds of books like body arts and weird like ed wood videos you name it so
1: yeah cool
0: so in love is the law you mentioned punk rock And Mm -hmm. your protagonist, you even named her Dawn. I love it. Um, And she's obsessed with communism, obviously punk. She's kind of a punk girl and the occult. So what I want to know is, was it challenging bringing these different realms together? Or do you see see them as kind of inherently linked?
1: Um, Well, because they're fringe cultures. Right. So you have fringe extreme opinions. And it is much easier to go from one extreme opinion to another extreme opinion than it is to... Go from one extreme opinion to the center, or vice versa. So it's not at all unusual to to find, and pretty much anyone you can encounter who has an extreme opinion on some level, having hammered together some bunch of opinions sure. about other topics. Yeah. So you know, plenty of communists, or for the most part, you know, any consistent communist is like is a huge atheist. But if you you know dig a little deeper, you'll find someone with you know a variety of beliefs. That sometimes you know uh, erupt into sort of you know really important things like liberation theology or. Uh, or they might abandon materialism for a kind of anarchism to further embrace whatever set of, you know, metaphysical beliefs they have. So it's not at all unusual. I mean, part of the story is about the struggle between those two things, you know, using different logics, because it's a murder mystery. And most, most murder mysteries use a certain kind of logic mm-hmm. to uh, come to the conclusion, for the pursuits to come to the conclusion, right. whether it's about uh, the facts at hand, like Sherlock Holmes or uh, – investigating you know deep into the personality trying to get into the criminal mind and so she was using two different ways two different methods she was using the materialist method of you know class analysis and also sort of a metaphysical method and occult cult method of uh depending on coincidences and on outrageous activities to draw the truth to her right. yeah
0: it's interesting how um a lot of those fringe cultures do kind of go hand in hand i noticed you kind of just looking at lou adler's work you know mm-hmm. when he started getting into filmmaking uh it was like Chichin and chong hey you got the whole drug crowd then he did rocky horror show hey get the whole sex crowd you know mm-hmm. you got all your bases covered and then you know yeah. it's definitely occult themes especially in right. the latter one but you mentioned um so it's a murder mystery um yeah. and she's trying to solve the murder of her mentor correct mm-hmm. yes did you have any particular mentors that kind of helped uh help teach you this sort of narrative sorcery you're known for
1: not not a one <laughs> it's all cobbled together from a variety of sources. You know, books can be mentors, I suppose. You can say that and and yeah, and some level that out, that outpost section of Tower Records is still the, the mentor. Whoever whoever was the whoever was the book buyer for that in nineteen eighty eight has a lot to answer for. I gotcha. know, this kind of thing is, you know, kind of mentor proof, right? You can't go to Clarion or an MFA program to learn this sort of thing. Yeah. You can go there unlearn to unlearn it. <laughs> right. Well, that's my thing. It's
0: it's kind of, un- I had anti-role models more than I had any role models. Exactly. For yeah. sure. So, mm-hmm. speaking of the 80s, uh, you were one of the very first authors to have an online presence, right?
1: Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, it depends what you mean by online presence. Certainly, in the early 90s, uh, Genie, an online presence was a huge thing, and there's a you know, this sort of legendary set of communities there and the whale had a huge communities but I, I was online for a long time and then became a writer. We can say that. I mean, I've been online since 1989 but I started publishing in the mid-90s you know, non-fiction about being online you know, when you're a web or even pre-web internet person. The first thing you can write about in the 90s was, hey, you ever hear the internet? It's amazing. It's full of jerks. <laughs> well, that's even yeah. better. That gave you a little yeah. more street cred going in. Exactly. It. Yeah.
0: Cool. And um, what was your Screen name again?
1: Oh, you know, as was nihilistic kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which made a lot more sense when you were 17. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Than I, it did, uh, and when you're 45, yeah.
0: Some things just kind of have to stick. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of like a DJ thing, too. You know, Kid Leo. Exactly. And, uh, so it works, for sure. Yeah. And the cyber world definitely goes hand in hand with what we're talking about. Um, back to nihilism, though, I think a lot of people still kind of confuse anarchy and nihilism would you mind giving us a little bit of a breakdown on some of the differences
1: well first let me say that i didn't name myself nihilist kid because i was a nihilist <laughs> um it comes from a few things it comes from the comic book normal man speaking of underground comics ah, and there's a, a panel called the uh the legion superfluous heroes and that was one of the little We had a huge roll call of all these ridiculous heroes and that was one of them and of course i i first entered the internet via tiny muds which is, you know, virtual realms, sort of uh, a chat-based or text-based virtual realms, and so they weren't real. So it made a lot of sense to be a nihilist in a place that's not real. And of course, it's, you know, the so kids are often abbreviated to NK, and my name is Nick, so NK is kind of like Nick. So it kind of made sense in those levels. But I would say that nihilism and anarchism have a relationship. You know, certainly, clearly, there are many nihilistic anarchists. It depends on ultimately you're a sort of locus of agency and your critique of the state like is your is your critique of the state such that we should get rid of it and replace it with something else well unless some level, the first part of that is certainly nihilism you know you get rid of everything to create something new but there's also the kind of nihilism that says well i'll disregard the state and disregard capital the extent that you can i just guess this is pretty challenging to do <clears throat> and that could lead to ultimately sort of the anti-civ anarchism where well we can't really fight the state and fight capital we'll just you know hang out till it falls apart on its own and the 50,000 survivors will be great to hang out in the, in the ruins and eat fruit and you know have sex and that kind of thing which if you're one of the 50,000 fantastic if you want to the other 7 billion eh. right. but yeah certainly not certainly not all anarchists are you know involved in uh, cultivating chaos sure that's 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 the cliche right that the anarchist is there to say you know just fuck shit up and go fake chaos
0: exactly and and that's where i'm going with this and and just to piggyback on that uh, disinformation (laughs) and psyops information like code wars i think was the term uh was that coined in tron i remember the movie Mm -hmm. tron made a big deal of code wars yeah and i definitely never encountered that term before but it's it's definitely (laughs) making a big comeback and Somebody started, um, I guess I'm known to some of my people as sort of being (laughs) a spokesperson for Antifa somehow. They just look to me Hmm. for being like, hey, I heard there's like a civil war that's going to break out on Sunday. What's going on? (laughs) And I'm like, where did you hear this? You know, and um, so it reminded me. Do you remember the Iceman Cometh? Sure. Yeah. There was a lot of paranoia about the anarchists back Mm -hmm. then. Sure. Yeah. and that was even pre-red scare so I just kind of had this epiphany recently it's like oh yeah the paranoia you know there's always something to be afraid of um, first the anarchists and then after when that kind of that well dried up then we had communism then you know terrorism in the 80s and recently mm-hmm. and now it's kind of coming back home to this anarchy stuff yeah. so I mean what, what do you think um, how does it relate to just kind of how they're using chaos
1: um, to sort of
0: smear the, the anti-fascist movement
1: well i think it's, it's the defense of the fascist movement is the the main thing right if you can uh isolate antifa <clears throat> you basically have uh liberalism versus uh fascism and as it turns out more often than not not all the time obviously but more often than not um a ruling class will say, oh, okay well if the fascists you know not take over but we have something to say and we'll control them, they'll be our thugs on the streets and they'll be our uh point people and more often than not, uh, you know, the fascists end up taking over because, you know, only a weak ruling class would do that. Mm-hmm. And so part of uh, trying to marginalize anarchist and leftist radical thought, you know, is, is a way to fight the fascists. We talked about, you know, extremism. I'm not, I'm not a believer in horseshoe theory where the extremes are actually the same. But what is the case is that when there is sort of a generalized crisis – by definition, the people who have created the crisis don't have the answer to the crisis. Hmm. And so the answers come from either the right or the left.
0: Um, right. I mean, it's kind of like I think a lot of people fancy themselves, uh, you know, fans of old school conservatism, like the more classical definition sense, just steady yeah. progress. Right now, conservatives want to move backwards, which is kind of right. The reactionaries, yeah. Considering how many uh, crises there seem to be going on right now, it Mm -hmm. yeah, it seems like everyone's kind of just jumping to the more robust solutions, there's just the more immediate, intense um, kinds of things. But uh, yeah, so I noticed you sort of like to carry on the voices of some of your influences and even forge new meanings and connections out of them. It's very alchemical in a way, like mm-hmm. a, yeah. a little essence of Hunter S. Thompson here, some drops of Bukowski there. Um, yeah. I've heard Move Underground referred to as the marriage of Kerouac and Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, uh, when did you decide that you were kind of, uh, uh, I guess the term is narrative sorcerer?
1: Well, you can say that. I don't know if I'd say narrative sorcerer, <laughs> but I, one, I think in general, most everyone, you know, sort of uh, reveals their influences in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say there's a distinction I would make in my stuff between the books and the short fiction. And I do tend to uh, signal pretty broadly with the books hey, check out this sort of thing because I'm not a very commercial writer. And so, how does one get attention if one's not a commercial writer, right? Uh, well, what one can do is sort of signal saying, hey, if you liked Lovecraft or, if you, like Herowoc, or if you liked Kerouac or you liked Andreas Thompson, here you go. Mm. What do you think of that? You know, these are people who, you know, raised their own freak flags and people saluted. And now I'm raising my tiny little freak flag and hoping that I get 3% of those people to salute. (laughs) You know, who else was in that uh, outpost section of the bookstore 25, 30 years ago? As it turns out, not a huge number of people, but. (laughs) Well, but it's still smart.
0: And I got to tell you, I'm a voracious reader. And every book that I'm currently reading is somehow connected to the last book I read.
1: Oh sure. I think it was Cormac McCarthy who said, "Books are made out of books." <laughs> you know, and and that's definitely true. You you wouldn't want to read a book from somebody who's never read a book. Even if you even if it happened to have come, you know, happened to exist and you could read it, you wouldn't want to read it.
0: And about you know, the difficulty with reaching audiences, though, <laughs> I think. Uh, well, I'm a Jew, and I spent a lot of time in the punk scene, and I've come mm-hmm. to sort of look back as the two, you know they were never meant to be big either of those things, even though they birthed huge, mm-hmm. huge mainstream, you know, Christianity, uh, punk, you know, led to green day and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think about just kind of staying, uh, there's the old cliche that writers, you know, you'll make it big once you're no longer living, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. but, uh, I mean, how, how do you think it kind of connects to just, um, success yet still kind of being part of the, uh, the fringe?
1: Well, I mean, one thing that's very challenging is that, uh, in the current system where you have five publishers and two bookstores, that that uh, ability to, to to not make it bigger, but keep writing and keep publishing is gonna be uh, severely cur- curtailed. And uh, even though we have a lot of technology now like ebooks and print-on-demand that allow for more people to be published than ever before, if you look at what's out there, you don't go to the self-published section of your uh, Amazon to find <laughs> avant-garde material. You, you find watered-down, diluted, less successful versions of already commercial fiction. Right right so the challenge is that uh, right this this stage of capitalism this sort of techno capitalism has uh, is so hungry for content that it takes anything that may appear um, on a fringe and automatically or you know extremely quickly remonetizes and uh, redistributes it in this commercial version mm. so what one has to do is really try to you know carve out some method to uh have some other success You can't say I, I don't care about an audience. You have to care about an audience, for one thing. You know, you even if you were putting you know a bass guitar in your uh, mom's station wagon and driving around Montana hoping to play for kids at house shows, great, you're doing that, but you want the house to be full still. And if I'm going to get work with a publisher who's getting five thousand copies, I want them to sell that five thousand copies. Sure. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to be successful because I can't be successful, right? There, are, there are hard limits. In that there's a certain kind of book in the field of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and even cluster time crime that's successful, which is a series novel of around 85 to 95,000 words with a, uh, a sympathetic character dealing with problems in a sentimental way. That if, you, uh, if you want to be a successful writer, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's actually the method. Oh. I don't write. I don't write 85,000 word novels. I don't care for them. I have trouble reading them because I think they're too long. So many of them have you know a lot of scenes of people raising their eyebrows and sipping their drinks and closing doors <laughs> you can just cut out and have a nice 50,000 word thing but as technology has expanded the expanded the length of novels when you were working on typewriters novels 50,000 words long mm. now that everyone's on a word process, they're 85 95 100 words long 150,000 words long and people buy books by the pound they buy them like they're grapes or bananas right Am I gonna buy something with a thin spine for 10 bucks or something with a, a spine twice the size for 20 bucks? <laughs> I'm gonna buy that and put it on my coffee table. <laughs> yep, I'm gonna buy this huge thing, it might be crap.
0: No, I, I can't know. tell you how many times I yeah. walk into somebody's house, it's like I see the, that Blackwater book,
1: or you yeah. know, and it's
0: like, oh wow, how was it? It's just like, oh, haven't read it. You know, you're right, they're yeah. just set pieces.
1: Yeah. yeah, or even if you read it, you want to read, people want to you know, have a limited time, they want to invest their psychic energy in a lengthy experience. Mm. As opposed to a, a, a shorter, but maybe more intense experience.
0: Sure. Well, yeah. that's probably why I still like punk so much. I am very exactly minimal. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. You you want that kind of just almost instant intensity. So yeah. you know, what you did with bullet time in particular was pretty interesting. Um, it's almost, I kind of thought of William Burroughs' use of the cut-up technique, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's split up in such a more nuanced way. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about makes the format of bullet time so unusual and what gave you the idea for it?
1: Well, I've always been fascinated by point of view in books, <clears throat> probably from reading, you know, uh, Kirk Vonnegut as a kid. And when he just sort of go into first person after pages and pages of third person mm-hmm. or using direct address, but indirect address. So I was always been like sort of a point of view freak. And uh, I've also a uh, film. I was have a, you know, I went to graduate school for media studies back in the nineties at the new school. <clears throat> and, uh, Filmic point of view is really overwhelmed literary point of view. Mm. If you talk to writers, they always talk about, oh, I, this happened off camera, which makes no sense. It's not off camera. There's no camera in your book. It's off page and or off stage uh, in plays, you know, and this kind of thing. So, but, but people have used the telephonic or the televisual and the filmic uh, metaphor for their point of view for too long. So, I started really exploring point of view in a lot of different ways. And all my books have strange points of view, whether it's a uh, point of view of a very famous person like Jack Kerouac or the first person omniscient in Under My Roof, a kid who can read every mind in the world. Mm -hmm. Or a collective first person like in Sensation, which is a species of spider talking collectively about their fate. Or in Bullet time where it's um, one person um, looking at alternative versions of themselves, all of whom exist in different times in the third person while, while addressing the reader in the first person. And what I ended up doing, well, I mean, there are a few things here. The first thing was I, like I was saying, I like point of view a lot. And I started reading old writing books from before a film became ubiquitous and their discussions of the point of view were very enlightening and very interesting as far as how to, what it means about illuminating character and telling the reader what's important and information flows without using the filmic metaphor to talk about shots and scenes and cuts uh, and that kind of thing so that sort of influenced me also as influenced by the fact my no, production processes you know if we're going to be we're going to be communists here Colin <laughs> my production process is born out of the fact that for a long time, I made my living writing term papers for other for students, and I'd have four or five you know papers a day to do, which is very exhausting. So I had very limited time to write, you know, because I didn't have a lot of money, I didn't have you know vacation time or a day job or, or a supportive spouse or that kind of thing. So I ended up having to write short, and having to conceptualize books in a way that I could actually manage to write them. And so you can see Bullet Time has three different novelettes about three different characters who have the same name rearranged to create, uh, you know, a full story. And a lot of my books tend to be short in that way.
0: Were you kind of doing the Cubist thing as well?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent, absolutely, yeah. If there's a visual metaphor there, it's not film, it's definitely Cubism. Seeing that same thing from different angles while on the same plane.
0: Trippy, trippy stuff. Speaking of which, uh, a lot of gothic sci-fi fantasy authors uh like philip k dick and dion fortune they were rumored to have based some of their stories on otherworldly experiences and different esoteric experiments does any of your work draw upon phenomena of that ilk
1: not really a couple of dreams um and those were like sort of life-saving dreams i remember dreaming up a i was uh living in jersey city my rent was due at the time, I was working a little bit for as a freelancer for a magazine called Razor, which was kind of a semi-elevated men's magazine. Huh. And I had a dream about a story. And I woke up with this story in my head, all 2,000 words. I typed it up, sent it to them, and they gave me $1,000 that day. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is the kind of thing that happens once per career these days. But I was like, oh, i got to do this. My, my entire brain and my subconscious, my conscious, we're all working overtime to create this dream that I could produce in a 2,000-word short story and just do and that happened one other time um not with that same um economic imperative but a story um when i was doing vermont sort of also came from a dream and i just woke up at three in the morning and wrote it wrote it out and uh published it at brutarian quarterly which was you know if you know tower records and that zine section was uh one of the most promising prominent and interesting uh, zines of all time which had a lot of like they had ramsey campbell they had commercial writers in there and also these uh, sort of underground rockabilly acts and Really crazy interviews. So Dominic uh <clears throat> spent a lot of money and a lot of time creating a really wonderful magazine um, that I tried kind of to get into. And I tried getting into that magazine for years and years, yeah, thinking about really carefully how can I get this magazine? How can I get the story going? And ultimately, it was the one story that came to me in a dream that did so. But for the most part, no, I don't really do drugs. I never really got into it for a number of reasons: one, money; two. Um, when I was a kid, when I was an infant, I had a pretty severe bronco- bronchial pneumonia, mm-hmm. <laughs> so my lungs are all scarred up. So, it you know, have, hey, you want to smoke pot? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I don't. Yeah. Well, did that? I'm make also sense? a I'm also a super taster, so I can't really drink very much because everything tastes like poison. Everything I eat tastes like a lead pencil. Hmm.
0: Well, did that affect your discipline at all, or um, did you start keeping a
1: dream journal after that? Um, I pay close attention to my dreams. I'll say that much. I do have a special skill. I can fall asleep pretty much anywhere, whenever I want to, at any time. Airplanes, boats, floors, you know. That's
0: very punk rock.
1: Yeah, so I've never had a problem with anyone like, oh, I'm up all night, I can't sleep, I have no one." something, i able like, to turn it off. And so, I, you know, I'll look at dreams then, but I don't really care about that all that much because, you know, writing is like an intellectual, formal process for me. Mm-hmm. So I, my preferences, my, I get more pleasure from contemplating some story some form and then filling a plot finding a plot for that form and filling it in cool so
0: back to radical politics do you have a background in anti-fascist organizing at all who's asking (laughs) that's a cop
1: question colin (laughs) well let's just say i i don't not have one
0: (laughs) well then what might be some good resources for people that suddenly find themselves giving a fuck about their country. And
1: are about thinking, their country? Come on. That's, now you're being a social patriot, too. People who want to beat up Nazis. Is they that interesting? Take action. Right. Okay, oh, yeah, they yeah. want to take some action. All right, there you go. That's that. If you want to take action against Nazis, here are, I would say, three things to consider. One is that if you conceive of Antifa as a warrior caste of some sort who are the people who mix up on the streets, they need uh, public support and so you can do this from home on Facebook or Twitter or argue with relatives or write articles or send money for bail mm-hmm. or be medic without without having to mess th- you know, mix things up. There, you know, there might be some glory in that, like, oh everybody wants to be like guy who punch Richard Spencer. And he, that was really a great propaganda blow, right? It, you know, you really kind of wiped Spencer off the map for a long time and <clears throat> created this whole sort of concept of punching Nazis. Punching Nazis is good. Um So we need people who who do that, who generate that kind of idea or propagate that kind of idea without actually being on the streets doing it. Um, I I live in Berkeley, California. I uh, witnessed some things. I'll tell you when Milo Yiannopoulos came uh, to Berkeley, one reason why that action was so successful in shutting him down was that a very large number of students there came out to see what was going on. And they were broadly... Sympathetic, if not even not necessarily completely sympathetic. They weren't necessarily radicals. They didn't necessarily think uh, Yiannopoulos had to be stopped. And I would argue that Yiannopoulos is not a fascist. He's you know very close to the radical right. The kind of people who um, attract fascists to them, mm-hmm. you know, and then move to the right, or and or perhaps will move to the left. I I, I suspect that Yiannopoulos will move right to the left uh, in a couple of years once he realizes that the money's going to dry up. Because he is pretty uh, mercenary in that way, but because of that very large number of people who who are outside of that Antifa clique, the cops couldn't get through. Everyone got away. I think had to be shut down because it was uh, and because you know the Berkeley police couldn't handle it. Even the Oakland police couldn't handle it. The Oakland police is you know far more violent and and larger and well funded and aggressive than the Berkeley police. Mm-hmm. But subsequent activities, where it was basically, you know, uh, LARPing, street fights, or, or street shoving, um, didn't do as well in the right. One, a couple of those encounters because the periphery did not come out to watch. So mm-hmm. one, you can do things at home to propagate these ideas. Two, if you can come out, come out to watch, to block the police, mm-hmm. to be the concerned citizen, that kind of thing. Three, if you're serious about Mixing it up with people. <clears throat> uh, for any police officers uh, here, I don't recommend hitting somebody first, maybe, kind of thing like that, or carrying illegal weapons. But I would recommend, if you're able bodied and interested in doing this kind of thing, going to a judo class. Because judo will teach you how to fall. Right. And then they'll teach you how to keep your feet when you're being tripped up. Because often people will trip up over their own feet because they cross their feet <laughs> when they're when they backwards. They don't, they don't step the way a boxer steps. Exactly. You no, know, one foot in, then one foot out or one foot out and one foot in they they try to do like a cartoon character sort of rubbing <laughs> over their own ankles <sighs> so judo will keep you, help you with that as well and, it, and it's cheap it's widely available it's a nice sport for children and for everybody old people do it blind people do it <sighs> um, it's um, pretty laid back it's not like a big macho culture yeah. and it keeps you on your feet and tells you how to get up safely and, it, and if you don't want to do this you want to be political you have a place with ice take judo you have a place. That they got some money. Take judo. When you fall off your bicycle, or fall on the street, or you're an old man, or old woman, or old whatever, and you fall down the steps, you'll be better off. <laughs> so take a judo class. That's what my recommendation. Well, thank you. Sure.
0: And what do you have to say to people that think antifa is something that just popped up out of the blue recently?
1: Well, I guess you can read that book. Mark Bray's Antifa guide or Antifa handbook, I, I went to a re- meeting with him, a rating with him, he was a pretty interesting guy <clears throat> he had some solid things to say, it gives you a lot of the history of it, I mean you know anyone who, could, who can Google can find out that it's not the case, you know that it happened started in the 30s with the Communist Party in Germany that created the United Front, a real one too, not just a fake United Front, which most of the United Fronts are fake United mm-hmm. Fronts to sort of feed people into different parties, <clears throat> and they did a really good job it came too little too late, that's why That's or well, that's one reason why it did not succeed and in post-war England, there was a group of people who, uh, you know, mostly veteran returning veterans, who did cooperate with the police to a certain extent, uh, would break up Nazi rallies and uh, black shirts. <clears throat> so whenever fascism kind of emerges from the very deep, deep underground to try to publicly manifest, <clears throat> the left is always there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but anyone who should, you know, you check out this Mark Bray book. Um, maybe you could s- splice it in the name Anti-FI Handbook. And another one I really liked, which is uh, more. Uh, <clears throat> analysis of the history of fascism and especially it's weird semi-occult semi-goofy uh group hustles with of course the country the course of course the century is uh against the fascist creep uh, which is especially yes. interesting for leftists because many of course well you know again fascists will often adopt an anti-statist or anti-capitalist point of view for a variety of reasons one they they, they are you know uh, reactionary so they they like to a pre-capitalist golden age two extremists recruit extremists right so they try to infiltrate uh left groups so it's pretty handy on that level as well so those two books i'd rec- recommend uh highly
0: oh i wanted to go back though you did mention there are some things you could do from home um mm-hmm. like even facebook and stuff and show support yeah. and um mm-hmm. i've been kind of trying to keep my distance just because like i teach debate classes for a living i don't really need mm-hmm. to get into this stuff on facebook with people i don't really know but i feel like Uh, a certain responsibility sometimes to do my part you want to drop a little truth bomb in here and there Mm -hmm. and you know when even smart people that i know in real life are going out saying oh yeah the alt-right and the alt-left or you know they're they're buying into those false equivalencies Mm -hmm. and i have been bringing up that in charlottesville uh Antifa showed up to basically protect that one synagogue mm-hmm. and um straight from the rabbi you can read his account you can read you know these were quiet people in prayer they weren't part of the counter protest and still some of those white power goons were threatening to burn the place down
1: and I, right yeah I, well that's why we that's why we fight these nazis right they don't they don't peacefully protest and, but, when they when they manifest in public they do it for violent reasons every 100 of the time even if they have a peaceful protest when they go home they'll beat somebody up on the subway they'll beat somebody up beforehand that's 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 how they that is how if you are being recruited into a fascist organization you prove your ability to be an asset to their organization by breaking the law so one you have to depend on your new friends you can't depend on the state anymore because you'll, you'll be arrested mm-hmm. two they have something over you it's like a criminal gang or a mafia gang <clears throat> so these are necessarily violent people who are always going to do these kinds of things so that's something to keep in mind that you know Often, where well, we have this guy here uh, around Berkeley called Base Stick Man, Mark Chapman, who was back in prison now because he filed his bail. His bail was you can't have a weapon, mm-hmm. and he went on Facebook, showing, hey, check out this new thing, guys. I know I can't have a weapon, but this is more of a keychain. <laughs> right? Real smart, right? And well, yeah, he's not real smart because like people, you know, the, the fact is that people who are criminals, these guys are not in been in prison um are you know adrenaline addicts. They think with their uh endocrine system, not with their brains. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you if you think you're gonna get beaten up in front of this guy or he's gonna beat you up and the cop will come and save you, one, they're not, because you're the baddie. You're the anti state person. Two, he doesn't care if he goes to prison. Right.
0: So <laughs> to people that are saying so that's oh, a, why yeah. not just debate them? You know, uh
1: basically There's nothing just... to debate. Yeah. <laughs> you can't debate them. you can't debate somebody's pineal gland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are fascist intellectuals and that kind of thing. Those might be worth critiquing which is different than debating right debating gives them the sanction you're there in front of them saying oh that's an interesting idea here's my idea critiquing is look at these stupid things this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and that's people it's what people should do i saw an interesting comic strip or comic panel a couple of years ago and it's not i don't agree with it 100 percent but it has an interesting point um it showed on the left somebody um with their hands over their chest saying it's not my job to educate you you Shit, Lord, or whatever. <laughs> go, go, you know, suck on your privilege, whatever it was. Something on that was long. guy on the right saying, and he's a right winger saying, hey, you want to see those Muslim crime statistics? You want to see the black IQ things? I'll educate you. Here's all the stuff. So, this kind of education is necessarily important because if if ideas are, if, if there's a void, they'll be filled with something. Mm. And you can't just say, well, oh, you're privileged, you don't know. Pff, I can't possibly teach you because you have privilege. Or you're just a jerk, I can't possibly teach you. If your politics don't involve people changing their minds, you don't really have politics.
0: Now, what a lot of listeners may not realize is that in addition to being an award-winning author, you've also won some martial arts championships. Could you tell us a little bit about the influence of MMA on your writing?
1: Oh, I don't do MMA. I, I do old fort uh, martial arts. I do Chinese martial arts. Okay. Uh, mostly I do Chen style Tai Chi and I've won a couple push hands tournaments, which is basically like kind of, it looks like sumo. Or slow sumo, depending on the rule set. Gotcha. Uh, I would i would say it's helped in two regards. When I've done other martial arts, I've done another one, jiu jitsu. I've done some shui jiao, which is Chinese judo. Uh, a little different. There's no, uh, you wear a vest instead of a long jacket, or, uh, and just, there's no on the ground stuff. It's more throws and and uh, locks and things like that. <clears throat> but I'd say it help in two levels, well, three levels, I'd say. One is calm me down significantly so it's giving me more of a focus i can sit down for three hours and write um two it's helped my arms and so a lot of writers my age are now oh my joints hurt my wrist hurt, my my fingers hurt i've got carpal tunnel i don't because i do tai chi and uh, the third thing is for you know if you're writing fantasy horror there are often occasions for fight scenes <clears throat> and i can write a pretty good fight scene
0: so bringing it full circle back to punk do you remember the first time you heard it or heard the term um and do you know was it originally a jailhouse slang for uh someone's bitch Hmm.
1: i mean i grew up in brooklyn in the 70s i was a kid so when punk hit in you know 74 75 76 i was that was the first thing i'd heard of it i was like a little kid <sighs> just seeing that somebody the one guy with the mohawk and benson Harris Brooklyn walking down the street oh there's a punk you know, Or my uncle, who lived with us in the late 70s and early 80s, would bring home, you know, you would go to the Ramon shows or Blasters and bring home little scenes and little flyers, and I'd hear things like that. <clears throat> so I so I always knew it as kind of that weird music, weird subculture thing, because I was right, you know, in that ground zero. As like, a tiny child, I was not, like, you know, going to shows or anything as a four-year-old or seven-year-old or even a 15-year-old, but that was the kind of thing. So I always were pretty familiar with it.
0: And do you see punk in and of itself as... Sort of an offshoot of Antifa?
1: Oh, I don't know if that's the case. If I, if I, I guess I would posit punk as um, the immediate uh, descendants of the New York Dolls, and then to the Ramones, which was pretty. We're, they were all pretty apolitical, um, and Antifa, of course, you know, emerged separately. But you know, what was punk for? Punk was for disaffected kids, <clears throat> and where do extremists recruit? They recruit disaffected kids. So of course, you would find Maoists and anarchists and uh, Hare Krishna. Uh, oops. struggling, with saying, hey kids, you know, uh, I grew up uh, Greek Orthodox, and there was a Greek Orthodox punk scene called Death to the World oh. that would come out too. So everybody was you know, had their hands in it, <laughs> which made it very interesting to like, you know, you can get, you can go to a, a fair or go to a matinee and get all these weird and stickers that said you know many different things, everything from you know uh, <sighs> deep ecology, which you know has its own uh, connection to fascism in a way. Mm-hmm. As well as anti-Soviet anarchism, <clears throat> as well as you know, straightforward Maoist communism, <clears throat> and plain old outer borough, bridge and tunnel, obnoxious uh, conservatism, like uh, I was agnostic fund was probably like the worst. Uh, annoying band singing about, you know, I don't like those guys on welfare, I work for a living. You know, that kind of yeah. crap. It's, <laughs> it's
0: really bizarre. I, I've kind yeah. of tried to dig deep and figure out, because you know, Evan Seinfeld even was mm-hmm. like, you know, he's Jewish, and he was writing yeah. some stuff like praising, you know, they're kind of trying to impress each other, and yeah. well, I mean, I guess that's part of the danger of punk. It just attracts such you know extremism. Yeah. It's wild.
1: Um, it, it, it attracts seekers, and a collection of seekers will attract extremists to recruit. You know, where can we use this energy? Oh, for my ends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then the course they the counter that is well, we'll miss it all about the music. Well, one, the music's not great. <laughs> 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 so there's some limits how hard much you can make it about the music, without turning into like a collector field. I mean, like you know, here in SF, maximum rock and roll, great scene still. You know, but they still have these shit workers who pay work almost for nothing, and uh, they have all these 45 records and now worth thousands of dollars. And the kids who created them back 30 years ago are getting none of this, you know, or potentially none of this. If somebody goes on eBay and sells a, a 45 to some uh, tech guy or some Pixar lawyer for three thousand bucks, <laughs> so your choices are extremism, bad music, or collector culture, culture. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the nature because you're living under you know a total uh, not a totalitarian but a totalized capitalist system where everything is capitalism. We can't. You can't worm your hand of it. You can only hope to chop away at it.
0: And when did you start holding writing workshops?
1: Oh, when I lived in Boston. um, There's a place that still exists called Grub Street Incorporated that uh, I pitched a class to. The class was writing science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And then it became uh, mystery and romance and other things as well, because most writing classes, whether they're community groups like Grub Street or in colleges, traditionally historically have looked askance at genre fiction you know you can't write it you know i to write it or i don't understand it or i've never read any of it so it must be bad <laughs> and so creating a place for the people to write and to learn how to write it's... in in these modes is you know was handy and useful so i've been doing that for you know i guess 10 years now
0: i know there can be some uh, interesting characters that show up to these writing workshops any uh, interesting stories uh like that?
1: Oh, I've got. I mean, I've got zillions. Um, but I should be nice to my former students. Some of whom have become very good, you know, and uh, have published pretty widely. I've got a, a Pushcart Prize winner, and people have published their books and that kind of thing. Um, I will say that once upon a time, I did have a woman who was writing primarily about her cat. Huh. Um, and he gave her a voice and magical powers and all, a lot of other cat friends. <laughs> and I think the cat was something like Snowflower or Starflower. And uh, she had a boyfriend named Blackwing or Blackfeather, and they would, you know, go back and forth to this magical realm of cats, and all these other cats showed up, like Rainflower and Sunflower and Snowflower and Beeflower. The shit got real when, when all nine of these cats showed up. Uh, but the weird thing was this was an online course, and the weird thing was she started talking, she started posting in the voice of this cat as well, was that another woman in the class post in the voice of her dog. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just talking to each other, not as an assignment or anything, just, like, you know, just in, the, in the chat section. <laughs> this just, cat and dog were talking to just each other. took on a life of its own. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I stopped reading that thread. I, like, I hope they don't start harassing each other. i <laughs> have to start reading this to make sure it stays nice. But uh, I think they were fine. Well, are you willing
0: to leave us with uh, any particular writing tips?
1: Yeah, I'll just tell you um, one thing. When I was an editor at Clark's World, I'll tell you that. I rejected most stories on the first page. And the reason was for an elementary error of point of view. Um, Getting going with that televisual point of view, overwhelming literary point of view, whether it's a first-person narrative, something saying something they wouldn't possibly know, or starting, kind of starting the story in the middle of some bizarre action that wouldn't lead to them turning on the mental recorder in their brain, or that flies all over the character to the, how the bus feels, to what happened ten years prior that they didn't know about, the character didn't know about, but it was somehow thinking about, just things like that. So keep your point of view strict, you know. Settle on, settle on a point of view first, and when you read, look for consistency in point of view. And if you must change point of view from one perspective to another, have some kind of break, whether a line break or a scene break, to do that. That's my recommendation, just in general, with broad strokes. The other thing I recommend that you do is when you have a story, print it out, or you would look at it on your screen, and read the story over again by putting your hand on every paragraph of the page one at a time. If the page still makes sense with that hand covering uh, a paragraph, erase that paragraph. Those are the two quick and dirty tricks. Minimalism. Yeah.
0: Now, what about someone who's specifically trying to make that transition from small press to large? Um, do you have like any particular method or to-do list that they can follow?
1: Um, well, I think one thing to keep in mind is things are very arbitrary. I know small press books that have sold seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 copies. I know large press books that have sold 200 copies. <sighs> so that transition may not be as uh, fruitful as you think it is. It depends on the book in a lot of ways because a small press can put a lot of time and energy in a book while the big press can say, oh, yeah, that guy who bought that book for us, um, he was fired. And then his replacement was also fired. And uh, the intern, we got rid of that intern. Uh, so now here I am. I'm person number four on this book. I don't care about it. I'll reduce your, I'll reduce your print run in half. I'll turn this hardback over to a I got my own stuff. you know. So, so you can get slammed in a, in a big press right away. I'll tell you I had a book with a big press um it was co-edited by ellen dotlow a very famous anthologist and editor i'm very pleased to work with her it was called haunted legends it was my idea was urban fan, uh, urban legends and ghost stories true ghost stories written by real writers instead of nuts mm. <laughs> and it did well enough it got you know a world fantasy nomination Bram stoker award winner nice. but it came out from Tor books the same day as another book oh. september 14th 2010 that book was called he is legend that was the Richard Matheson tribute anthology right. our book haunted legends had a shadowy figure on the cover he is legend had a shadowy figure on the cover oh. haunted legends had a yellow spine he is Legend had a yellow spine <laughs> um haunted legends had ramsey campbell and joe lansdale he is legend had stephen king and joe hill who's just announced as, joe, as stephen king's son so they're put out on the same exact date by barnes and noble given to the same buyer at barnes and noble who's told you know you, you have a certain budget, Mr. Buyer. You're your supposed to keep your job. Which one of these do you buy 5,000 copies of? Which one of these do you buy 50 copies of? Well, the one that Stephen King, of course, gets the 5,000 copy buy, right? Or around that number, anyway. So a big press can't mess you up. <clears throat> of course, a small press can mess you up, too. So you, what you want to look for is a press that, one, is in stores. Small presses can get to stores no problem. There are plenty of small press books in stores. Cool. Two, Read them, look at them, look at them physically. Um, bad small presses make the same mistakes over and over again. They have a uh, misnumbered table of contents because they put in new pages and they put in a, the front matter and back matter last. So they end up messing up the table of contents without changing the numbers. That's a good sign of a small press that's kind of confused. Small presses often leave out things like headers and footers on a page. They're invisible to most readers, but there's no reason to leave them out except that you're not paying attention. Or even worse, they'll put them on a blank page. Because there's a running header that's, oh, I, I know in design, I've got to press this button, running header. But if there are five blank pages because you have five chapters or five stories, that shouldn't be there. These are, these are signs. Doing a is a sign that somebody is professional knows what they're doing and has mastered the art of producing a book. And the third thing, look for are widows and orphans. So you don't even have to read a book. You need, it's not even a matter of taste or content. <laughs> At this point, it's just a matter of, do you know what a book looks like? <laughs> and so widows are a little phrases or little characters at the top of a page let's say the end of a sentence the end of a paragraph that shouldn't be there that should be a pretty full at least half half the line should be text you'll never turn a page of a commercially published book that's done by a real publisher and it says he said at the top of a page same with orphans which at the bottom of a paragraph those should be eliminated but most people in small presses who don't do a very good job just say hey indesign's easy Add content. It flew right in. Great. <laughs> no big deal. To a press. Yeah. not look at this. Boy, why are these books from the main publishers so expensive? Who are they, what are they even paying for? Well, they're paying for someone to spend two weeks fixing this book that you just put out. Wow. So I, look, well, I get a small press but The first thing I do is table of contents. Yep. Credit page. Yep. Headers and footers. Yep. Widows and orphans. Yep. And if it's good... If it's done professionally, it's like, oh, these guys have spent some time doing this. They spent, spent some time with the books to so know what a book looks like. And then I'll read for content. So if you are if you are looking for a small press, you should think, am I in a small press because I am less good commercial fiction or am I writing something that's too good or too unusual for a big press to handle correctly? Mm-hmm. If it's the former, don't send it in, just keep writing. You're publish your first book no one's no first novel is a first novel very few of them are right. most first novels are second third fourth fifth novel that's totally fine be patient if you really are an unusual writer or an avant-garde writer absolutely you'll need a small press for the most part Although, of course sometimes things break through there are very few books as unusual as house of leaves which is now 17 years old kind of maybe an old example but it's a, a perennial uh back the cellar and much more unusual than many uh supposedly avant-garde experimental fiction hmm. so it can happen but uh, you know you need a good agent for that kind of thing and uh, connections i mean danielski was the the brother of a rock star at the time and there's a lot of you know cross promotion at that 17 years ago with the uh, the song singer-songwriter poe was is his sister uh, so initially house of leaves conceived as kind of a uh, literary companion to her her record and that kind of thing that makes sense yeah So there are always reasons. I mean, if you see somebody coming out of nowhere, and they're, oh, they're so successful, what happened? How'd they do it? Look for for the rich or successful parent or or sibling.
0: I love the plumbing analogy. Uh, Whenever somebody bugs me to help them on something they're working on, like uh, even if it's just an email, and I'll chime in here and there like, hey, don't start so many sentences the same way or uh, whatever. And at the end, they'll be like, but didn't you like it? And I'll say, hey, you don't ask the plumber. Didn't you like my pipes? No, just fix the fucking problems. That's right. So wait, can you tell us about your latest book?
1: My latest book is mixed up. It is me and my friend Molly Tanzer. We uh, got together to make an anthology. It is uh, cocktail recipes by Molly and, you know, flavor text about the recipes. And short stories of my selection, for the most part, um, by Jeff Vandermeer and Carmen Machado. And other folks like that. Sorry. Um, Basically... I've read a bunch of cocktail books. and I thought, oh, it's so interesting. These the stories of these cocktails are so weird, but I wish there was like a story, a narrative. Hmm. And so that was our idea. And it was hard to publish because uh, nobody else thought that. It was like everyone you know, in publishing was like, well, why would there be a story in a cocktail book? <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand. Maybe essay, maybe essay and cocktail book good, but not story. But anyway, um, Skyhorse, uh, a nice independent press, put it out. And it's doing all right, and you should order it from an online retailer or go to your local bookstore and ask them to order a copy for you. Definitely.
0: And what's the best way for listeners to keep up with you?
1: Twitter, at Mammatoss, at yeah, Facebook is uh, mostly locked down. My blog is more or less defunct because nobody reads blogs anymore, but Twitter is where I am public. And you have a website as well, right? Yeah, nick mamatas.com which I, I update, or my friend Ian updates once a year.
0: Hey, Nick, I can't thank you enough for coming on.
1: My pleasure.